Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Current Perspectives on Cancer Survivorship. And this is such an important topic and one that I know many of you have waited a long time for us to do another program on this topic. Um, and today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have over 401 participants on the call today, and we come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, uh, urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Ireland, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, um, Mexico, Nepal, Nigeria, Thailand and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call, and we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Roth, and Dr. Roth is Emeritus Attending Psychiatry, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Professor Emeritus of Clinical Psychiatry, while Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Roth will be addressing overview of cancer survivorship, the importance of treatment summaries, fear of recurrence, and follow-up with your oncologist and primary care doctor. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roth. Thank you, Carolyn, for that lovely introduction. I'd also like to welcome all those on the call today and also express a special thanks to Dr. Messner for the invitation to be part of this particular workshop. I'm going to talk about survivorship and fear of recurrence. Um, and there are three uh, major lessons on survivorship that I think we've learned from the growing population of those who've been living with through and beyond cancer. The first is that language is important. What do we mean when we talk about someone being a cancer survivor? Maybe 30 or 40 years ago, in the United States, a group of individuals, including those who'd been diagnosed with cancer, oncology healthcare providers, and a handful of leaders of programs or organizations providing support to these individuals and their families gathered in New Mexico and created what is now known as the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. At that time, the term cancer survivor was used only in reference to those individuals who following treatment for cancer remain disease-free or having no evidence of cancer for five or more years after treatment. The coalition reflected that people could not be putting their lives on hold to see if they are going to be alive in five years. Even in that earlier period, more than half of those diagnosed and treated could be expected to, to survive five years. And many, if diagnosed as young people, would live for years, even decades longer. A person couldn't wait five years to make decisions about fertility preservation or limb sparing or treatment with different toxicity. 
these were considerations that needed to be made before treatment began, and the maximum uh, choice of options remained available. So they, this coalition argued that a person should be able to call himself or herself a cancer survivor from the moment of diagnosis and for the balance of that person's life. There are three important points behind um, their championing this uh, definition of a cancer survivor. First of all, and foremost, it was not meant to be a label. Many people reject this definition when they think of themselves. You know, you never talk about heart attack survivors or diabetes survivors. There are others who don't feel that they survived something as challenging or life-threatening as a war or a disaster or an assault to warrant such a title as survivor. And there are still others who feel that they more than survived their illness, but they rather than see themselves as survivors rather than survivors. And while others don't wish to think about or dwell on this period of their lives at all, they simply just want to move on. But regardless of how one feels about the label of survivor, that coalition did want to convey to those uh, found to have cancer, a message of hope, that there is good and meaningful life after cancer, no matter how long that life is. And that should be acknowledged uh, throughout. Third, and maybe most important, um, the coalition wanted to change the dialogue between the patients and their healthcare providers about cancer care. Specifically, they wanted to ensure that conversations about care would occur before treatment started to help ensure that people received care that took their personal preferences, their needs, their desires into consideration in an informed decision-making process. That the focus would not only be on cure, but would integrate quality of life goals. And in the United States, this redefinition helped to change the culture of care. While this hasn't been uh, embraced universally, the growing number of cancer survivors around the world living longer has slowly shifted the, uh, the focus of care to one in which attention is increasingly paid to health span, not just lifespan or length of survival. So language is important. Survivor and survivorship, though, are two different terms. The term survivorship, which starts at a time of diagnosis, is more often associated with concern about what life is or will look like after definitive or primary treatment has been completed. This includes a focus on long-term or persistent effects of cancer and its treatment, the late occurring effects, which could happen months or years after therapy ends, interventions to prevent and mitigate these side effects, and how and what cancer follow-up care should be delivered, when, where, and by whom so that we can maximize the health and well-being of those who are living with and beyond cancer. I think the second major lesson learned from survivors is that cancer is not over when treatment ends. And I'll be talking a little bit about this later with people's fears of recurrence. But cancer and its treatments have the capacity to affect virtually every aspect of an individual's life, physically, emotionally, cognitively, socially, financially, and existentially. Some people experience few adverse side effects, while others experience many of them. And we're not very good yet 
at predicting who will be at greatest risk for some of these effects, though we are getting better. And we do have better interventions to prevent and control these adverse side effects. These lasting and potentially late occurring effects of cancer are why we have come to realize that having an action plan for the future is helpful. And that is the third lesson that we've learned um, from the many survivors uh, of cancer. Now it's referred to as a survivorship care plan, which is a living document that has two parts, a treatment summary and a plan of care going forward. Ideally, this is something that's shared and discussed at the end of acute treatment between a patient or a survivor and her or his care team as they transition to after treatment or maintenance. Included in the treatment component are details like the cancer type, stage, location, tumor markers, um, surgery performed, whether chemotherapy was used, what type, what dose, if radiation was included, use of hormonal or immunotherapy or biologic treatments, and finally, any major treatment-related adverse effects. The second part of the survivorship care plan outlines four areas. Planned surveillance or follow-up for a recurrence, assessment of lingering or long-term effects of treatment, an assessment for risk of late-occurring effects, and the fourth and important component to the plan is a delineation of who is going to be responsible for delivering and coordinating this care. If you don't have a survivorship care plan, don't worry. It's never too late to develop one. As noted earlier, these are living documents meant to be modified over, over time because your health status and care may change over time. The plan does not need to be a paper document, but rather it can be put in uh, electric, electronic form and you can carry it with you or share with other healthcare providers. I'm not gonna move my discussion into fear of recurrence because um, I think it's a major uh, aspect of survivorship. You know, in my 30 years of clinical experience, I learned that perhaps the most desired, yet maybe most worrisome phrase that a cancer survivor can hear is, don't worry, everything will be fine. Reactions of many patients include, how do you know? How do you know for sure? Does my husband, my sister, my doctor really know for sure that everything's gonna be okay, even though my test came back okay today? Some might say, you know, that's what they told my family member who died of lung cancer. Or they might say, you know, I felt fine before my cancer diagnosis and didn't know how bad it was. Maybe this is another quiet before the storm period. You know, there may be um, many costs of uh, fear of recurrence, depending on the intensity, the frequency, and the duration of symptoms. We know that significant fear of recurrence can uh, impair quality of life, not just for the patient, but also for their loved ones, for their friends, for their caregivers. That um, there can be uh, interruptions in planning for the future. 
um, at a time when mortality may be front and center, people with this kind with a cancer diagnosis and having completed treatment might stop living a meaningful life. They might be living a cancer-oriented life based on timelines. They may have a lot of intrusive thinking, worries about is the cancer going to come back? When is it going to come back? When is the other shoe going to fall? And they check, and they check online, and they check their labs, and they check their body and look and look and look to see if there are any signs of recurrence. This can all lead to increasing healthcare utilization and costs, not to mention the cost of greater symptom burden and greater psychological distress. There's um, new pain uh, and new sensations when they occur. They can also lead to fears of recurrence of the cancer. Pain from treatment that already happened may confuse a person's body signals, and so they may be overly vigilant to see, is this something new, is this something related to the cancer, or is this just from my treatment? Interestingly, reassurances from family and physicians may help, but very often only temporarily. Distress anxiety and depression can all be associated with fear of recurrence. And in fact, fear of recurrence can lead to more distress, anxiety, and depression. There is a danger of people having all or none thinking. The scan results are going to mean either life or death. If my biomarker goes up, my tumor marker goes up a little bit, that's the end of me. As opposed to thinking of a spectrum of, well, there's a signal. And if there's a signal that says maybe the cancer's back, it gives my physicians some information as to what to do next, as opposed to I am a dead person at this point. People can get caught in a, a kind of catch-22. They might have some positive beliefs about worrying. Well, if I worry enough, I'll find a possible recurrence sooner. But then there are negative beliefs about worrying as well. Maybe it could be dangerous for me because I'm going to be increasing my stress levels, and if I increase my stress levels, maybe that's going to bring the cancer back faster. Unfortunately, there sometimes is a don't ask, don't tell policy amongst physicians and uh, patients. Uh, it, patients often are scared about recurrence, and doctors don't always want to um, ha increase the possibility of people thinking about uh, recurrence. And yet, the education that can happen between a physician, an oncologist, and the, and the patient could be very important in teaching people what to look for, when to look for, and to have an open line of communication to be able to ask the questions of a physician, say, you know, that is something to be concerned about or that's not something to be concerned about. The risk of increased fear of recurrence might include a history of past trauma and catastrophic thinking about many life issues, cancer experiences that a person has had in the past or losses due to cancer, uh, other family or friends who've um, had cancer experiences. Um, there can be some increased 
vulnerability, if there's uncertainty, uncertainty about how to identify risks or signs of recurrence. And there may be differences in um, every individual's treatment, even for the same cancer, and inconsistencies in treatment complexity and randomness, so that someone who only, only has surgery versus someone who goes through a long period of chemotherapy or a bone marrow transplant, um, they may have very different experiences and therefore different thoughts about uh, whether there's a likelihood of the cancer coming back, regardless of what is happening biologically. So what's, what does this mean? I think um, it's important for patients to have follow-up with their oncologist to come up with that survivor uh, care plan to, dis to understand what signs of recurrence may be, um, to be aware of overscheduling um, uh, appointments and scans. Scans are usually not therapeutic, um, but uh, even if someone gets weekly scans, the degree of relief they might have is maybe for hours, maybe for days, um, but it doesn't really resolve the idea of the fear of is the cancer going to come back. I think it's very important for people to remember that life is not only about cancer after they've had treatment. They need to make sure also that their primary care doc um, is aware of what's going on. And the primary care doc needs to be checking on someone who's had a cancer but is also looking at the whole person because there may be late effects from cancer treatment that may um, uh, come about that will impact someone's health down the road. Maybe it's related to the cancer treatment, maybe not, but I think those lines of communication are very important to keep open. I think those concerns that may come up about recurrence are important to bring up to oncologists and to primary care docs rather than the very easy step these days of going to uh, the internet and checking out what could this pain be? What could this uh, um, symptom be? What could this sensation be? Because on the internet, you can find a lot of things that will feed anxiety. Um, Psychotherapy, it may be helpful um, when someone's anxiety is so high that it starts to interfere with their lives. I think it's important for all survivors, and frankly, even those of us who haven't been diagnosed with cancer yet, to think about self-care, exercise, proper nutrition. Even doing things like meditation could be very helpful. Psychotherapy can be useful when someone has a lot of fears about the cancer coming back um, because it allows someone to talk about those fears and not worry that they are having to protect their loved ones from their worries. Um, they have someone who is not emotionally engaged in a relationship and a therapist can hear these worries and put them in context. They can help a person understand how to relate to their inner experiences and thoughts rather than just changing the thoughts. Get over it. Don't worry. I think, you know, in this world of being um, a cancer survivor, even going through treatment, some anxiety is good. 
it's a motivator to take care of ourselves. It's a motivator to go see the doctor and the oncologist. Sometimes, um, it, and you don't have to think that you're crazy just because you have some anxiety, but too much anxiety certainly can be paralyzing. And there are times when some medication may be useful, um, but that's a discussion to have with your oncologist, with your primary care doctor, or with a professional therapist. I want to thank you for your attention, and I'm now going to return the conversation back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roth. That was an outstanding presentation. You really set the stage for today's program. A lot of information. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And um, our, next, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Lupe, Dr. Guadalupe Palos, Palos. And Dr. Palos is former Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and research, researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing finding your new normal and quality of life concerns, including managing post-treatment side effects and late effects. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to participate in this wonderful panel discussion. Dr. Roth gave us a solid introduction to the definition of a cancer survivor, the issues faced by survivors, and the value of maintaining long-term follow-up using resources like the survivorship treatment summary, your oncologist, and other members of the healthcare team. He reinforced the critical role of follow-up care with, our prim with your primary provider or your oncologist. He also stressed the importance or discussed the importance of using um, other strategies to help cope with that survivorship period, such as meditation, exercise, and following um, a healthy diet. More importantly, he spoke of the fear of recurrence and its impact on the emotional health of cancer survivors. In the next few moments, I would like to address how to establish a new normal and to reshape your quality of life so it may be in sync with your new normal. For many survivors who have completed their treatment, returning to normal usually means going back to work. When can I go back to work? What will my new work schedule be? And that's because most people need their jobs, especially if it provides health insurance. However, getting back to normal is indeed a process of finding a new lifestyle that will fit your life after cancer, not just getting back to work. And it also may help to remember that the people around you have also been affected by the cancer experience. That means your family members, your caregivers, close friends, and others that you've interacted with along the way. So you and your loved ones may be unaware of some of these changes, which again will take time to adjust. So this period of finding a new normal is almost a family affair because it will affect everyone because as you find your new normal, they also will be seeking their new normal. So most people believe that their life is going to be different after cancer. However, these life changes can also vary across individuals. So one person's life being different is going to be entirely different from someone else's. Now, that kind of makes sense when you say it, but when we actually try to operationalize it, it becomes more challenging. 
one of the things that challenges is are the changes, the uncertainty. Those changes and uncertainties can be expected. We've been warned about them. We've talked about them. We've read about them. Or they can be unexpected. And it's those unexpected changes that often throw us into chaos and can really affect that fear of recurrence, trigger some of that, and then also affect how we interpret a quality of life for us during our new norm. So, Again, also, one of the things to remember, though, although some of these changes may be, benef- you know, may be frightening or somewhat negative, these changes can also be beneficial. So, for example, some survivors appreciate life more and find it easier to accept themselves as they are. These are reports from uh, patients I have worked with and from the literature and from research. Some people, though, find it hard to cope and adjust after active cancer treatment ends. Since, again, this is a time, usually, when you finish your treatment, you're going to be seeing and having less contact with your healthcare team. And that causes some discomfort to the caregivers as, and uh, for sure for the patient. And it also can trigger things like feeling uneasy or distressed before a medical checkup. Now, those type of feelings can generally improve over time, but if they don't, then that is a time to go seek some a therapist's help or uh, at least let your healthcare team know what you're experiencing. Now, for other survivors, treatment never really ends. There's not a definite, okay, we stop, and they deal with cancer and its daily effects for the remainder of their lives. So cancer survivorship is going to be a very different experience from them as compared to others who, yes, they have their treatment, uh, and there is a definite stop to that, and it goes into that uh, vigilant period that we were talking about after after, um, treatment ends. So as we've heard, cancer survivorship begins in the period after the initial cancer treatment. However, again, several definitions exist of what it means to become a cancer survivor. Some are related to a time frame, such as being a short-term cancer survivor, and then um, that usually means like less than five years after completed treatment, or being a long-term cancer survivor with with five or more years of survivorship after initial treatment. As your loved one and the the caregiver and the families transitions through these changes, the finding a new normal will depend on the phase of the cancer journey. Symptoms, side effects, needs, and information will vary throughout the cancer journey. So it's helpful to remember that finding a new norm is a dynamic process. So let me also just stop for a moment and ask, what do we mean by normal? So here's just a, a nice definition. Normal refers to a standard or expected state of being, something that's anything but right now. So, you know, again, that's a very subjective interpretation of normal, but that's a, a definition that's from one of the dictionaries. The term or the phrase new normal is used in cancer to describe the changes a person faces as a result of cancer and its treatment. So there can be physical and emotional um, effects, plus activity limitations. Um, and so today, the new normal is very different um, also because of the effects of what um, the COVID-19 pandemic did to many folks. So that also, when we say new normal within the context of today's discussion, we're, also, we're primarily focusing on the new normal for cancer patients. In time, though, 
In time of great change and certain uncertainty about the future, think about how you will define your new normal. So it's it's something, it's not going to come to you overnight. It's Again, it's a process. So if you can remember that, it's a process. And number two, it's a dynamic process. In today's discussion, we will also focus on quality of life. And quality of life here is how it affects how well we live. It's in the general well-being of people. And it's often used as a standard for happy, to measure um, happiness, comfort, and health that a person or a group of people experience. The World Health Organization defines quality of life as the individual's perception of their position in life in the context of the culture and value system in which they live. So that is going to be very different because cultures are very different, especially on a global level. And it also then will affect goals, expectations, standards, and concerns. Interestingly, or at least I thought it was interesting, the World Health Organization definition further states that happiness is a widely presumed component of quality of life. Since a cancer diagnosis affects the lives of cancer patients and their caregivers, it can shape how they see and experience happiness. And all of these factors can be critical to mental health and quality of life. Again, the definition and needs of cancer survivors and their caregivers' happiness and quality of life will vary. However, there are some core elements defining quality of life. And these core elements interact together to make what they call a multidimensional structure of quality of life. So these um, measures include uh, for quality of life. Of course, you want to look at your health, um, your social relationships, your emotional well-being, your work life, your personal safety, your sense of belonging to a group or a group of people, your financial well-being, and your quality of environment. So all of these things, and there's lots of research in this area. We don't have time to go into all the different models. But I just want to let you remember that when we speak of quality of life, it's not just going to be one thing that we're looking at, right? It's going to be all these elements. And each of these elements is going to be a priority at a different time um, of the cancer journey that you will have as a survivor as well as your family and caregivers. Now, the negative impact of cancer is well documented in published literature, and these negative aspects of the journey have been well established and reinforced by the personal narratives shared by patients and their families. It is true that patients and caregivers report distressing symptoms associated with disease progression or even changes in their quality of life, yet they also report positive emotional states, which may be related to better well outcomes and happiness. However, little research has been done to really measure happiness. So if we change our focus from the negative aspects to the positive aspects of the cancer survivor experiencing, an interesting question that may cross one's mind is, what makes me as a cancer survivor and my caregivers happy? So to make sure we all have the same understanding of happiness in today's discussion, happiness is a deep sense of flourishing, not a mere pleasurable feeling, or a brief emotion, but an optimal state of being. Research shows that happiness leads to a wide range of benefits for a, a person's performance, health, relationships, and more. I'm spending time 
bringing and talking about um, happiness in today's discussion because it is a positive outcome for cancer survivors and their caregivers and families. And looking forward to a positive outcome can increase hope, motivation, and a better sense of being as well as a better sense of quality of life. I would argue that having this discussion would help patients and caregivers determine the essential dimensions of quality of life in their new normal. It may also help providers understand what matters to patients and their families. It may not always be focused on their ability to function, side effects, and symptoms. And those are the things we tend to focus on when we visit our providers uh, and we ha interact with our patients. It could be things such as their state of being, what brings them satisfaction, happiness, what are the new activities of daily living, how can they have fun, hopes, and dreams with their new normal, what is the meaning of their life existence? How did I, you know, how did I learn to become so resilient? And how do I continue my personal development as I seek this new normal? Those are questions that we don't always address with our patients and with our providers. So maybe it's time to open that discussion. So when an individual is first diagnosed with cancer, the experience seems overwhelming. It opens the door to a whole new world, a world filled with tests, schedules, fast, fast life and meeting many new people who are on the care team. There is uncertainty, new emotions, and hopefully remission. So it is often difficult for cancer patients or their caregivers to know where to start and what to expect. So I do just want to, uh, to stress a little bit about uh, the secondary prevention in the cancer survivorship. It means focusing on remission or having no evidence of disease. This is a time to be vigilant so that remission may be maintained. It's a time to have those treatment summaries to chart your health, wellness, vaccination, illnesses, and other substantial evidence of your health. It's time to use the summary to communicate with your primary providers, oncologists, and other health uh, care team providers. It's also a time to maintain the ha healthy habits that you may have had during treatment or to develop that new normal that includes becoming more active, learning new ways to prepare food and maintain a healthy diet, and engaging in some activity to rest your mind and your spirit, such as mindfulness, prayer, meditation, or therapy. I want to close my discussion with these two reminders for our audience. First, focus on the importance of self-care and self-management of your journey. Become a vital member of your healthcare team. Your active participation in this experience is just as cru crucial as the participation of every healthcare team member and your caregiver. Second, remember the vigilance and importance of monitoring your own health. That's why you want to ask your provider for a treatment summary. If they're unfamiliar with the summaries, let them know their examples online provided by professional organizations such as the American Cancer Society or the National Comprehensive Cancer Center. As a cancer survivor, use the treatment summaries to document your health over time, including the late and long-term physical and emotional effects. Remember, be vigilant about your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Take time to reflect on the questions about the quality of life. What do you need? How do I meet those needs? And how do I find happiness? Also, as caregivers, remember not to feel guilty about focusing on your needs. Remember that your loved one will benefit from a healthy caregiver. 
And both the patient and the caregiver will help by focusing, will benefit by focusing on what defines happiness for you at this point of your life and your cancer journey. So I'll be happy to answer questions. This concludes my remarks. Dr. Messner, I'm going to return the session back to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Paulos. That was an outstanding presentation. And I think we all were very intrigued by the concepts of happiness and building that into life. So I think that's something that may come up during the Q&A again. But thank you so much. That's just a great, just a great presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. And Dr. Shapira is a professor of medicine, oncology, Stanford University School of Medicine, director of Cancer Survivorship Program, faculty co-director for clinical research and clinical trials, Office of Cancer Health Equity, Stanford Cancer Institute, associate editor general of, of clinical oncology. And Dr. Shapiro will be addressing a discussion of health screening and health equity concerns and guidelines to prepare for your visits with your doctor. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shapiro. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for the introduction, for the opportunity to participate. And wow, my colleagues have given us so many pearls of wisdom that I'll just add a few comments so that we have time for Q&A. First of all, this issue of language, I want to come back to, um, I think that when I naively started to think about cancer survivorship, I thought that perhaps what we could do would be to find a transition and a quick switch from illness to wellness. And I in very quickly understood that that was not quite possible. So this idea of pursuing a new path for health a journey, perhaps looking for wellness, perhaps looking for a new normal, is so individual that it's very hard to generalize. So in our program, we talk about looking for health. And what health means after having been treated for cancer may be very different. It may be different from what health, good health, meant to a person before. So with the importance of understanding how to look after one's health and be as healthy as possible after cancer has to do with a few things. One is the trauma of having been diagnosed with cancer, and my colleagues have talked about all the mental health challenges that persist. Many people that I treat for cancer, when they finish their cancer treatment, they say they don't feel as happy as they expected to feel or as people expect them to feel, and this may carry over. But there is another dimension, and that is that the treatment for cancer, what we call in medicine the exposure to some cancer treatments, may have also their own issues later, what we call late effects, meaning that the treatment may change one's body and one's predisposition to develop other problems later, such as arthritis, osteoporosis, or even heart disease. And that is why the transition and the co-management or shared care with a primary care clinician is so vital. Many of our patients, you know, in my practice, I treat women with breast cancer, and they often feel more comfortable, I think, coming back to us. And I often have to tell them that the best outcome will be if they see their primary care clinician, nurse practitioner, or physician, because we're only looking at a tiny little slice of their health. And it is the primary care physician and clinician who really understand the need to screen for other diseases. 
to take into consideration the cancer treatment and customize the plan for preventative care and for management of what in medicine we call comorbid conditions, meaning other diseases, diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, and mental health as well. So ideally, a person with cancer will be well-informed and will have a way of sharing that with their primary care clinician. And that doesn't mean they don't see their oncologist, but that means that they're reestablished or established with somebody who can look after all of the different important dimensions of their health. Now, that's a little bit of a problem for some because many of our colleagues in primary care don't feel they know a lot about cancer survivors. And so there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect, and sometimes our patients tell us that the primary care clinician doesn't seem quite interested in cancer care. We are also trying to tackle that sort of on a national basis through education of the primary care clinicians, but it's important for cancer survivors to understand that the world of the primary care clinicians and the medical oncologists or surgical oncologists are quite different. And sometimes it requires a little bit of agility almost of translation of explaining what somebody's gone through and ask the primary care clinician very directly for help. So let me talk a little bit about the management of these comorbid conditions or other diseases. This is key. And I just want to impress upon people the need to think about prevention as something that means that you're not only getting tests to check on whether or not the cancer you were treated for has come back or remains in remission or is properly treated for those who need ongoing treatments, but also to look for and preventatively manage other conditions. This is really important, for instance, for heart health, to make sure that you are getting all of the proper checks, and that means blood pressure, cholesterol management, and perhaps some additional testing. So I was asked to reflect on equity and what that means. Well, that means very simply having access to the treatments and the services that you need. This is particularly important, for instance, for preventative care and sometimes for mental health. Um, there is often a disconnect between what a person's insurance in the U.S. will cover in terms of their cancer treatment, but people may not be able to access a mental health professional where they're being treated for cancer. So again, we need to rely on people being resourceful, informed, and seeking out advice from primary care. Telehealth has entered the scene and uh, is something that many of us have gotten very used to after the COVID pandemic because the visits that used to be in person were quickly switched and converted to either video visits or sometimes just phone visits. And there's an art to doing these properly and still feeling connected. I will say that for cancer survivors, the physical exam remains a very important part of care for some, and if that is the case, then please don't neglect that. And for others, the telehealth visit may be a convenient way to be in touch with a specialist and or primary care clinicians um, and get the most out of your visit because perhaps it's easier. You don't need to take time off from work. You can have these visits in your home or in your office at a time that's convenient for you. 
Now, I think that to get the most out of these visits, it's important to prepare. Just as if you were going to take a trip, you wouldn't show up at the airport without your ID or your passport. In, these, in this case as well, I think it's important to think about what you want to get out of those visits, to write down your issues or questions, to prioritize them. So if you only get to ask three questions, you ask the three that are most important to you. And that you negotiate the, how the time will be spent. If you really need to speak about something or have a request, you need to make sure that you bring that up. Because as I've often said to my patients, you know, I may really, I really want to be here for you, but I'm not a mind reader. So unless you tell me about your concerns, I'm, you know, I'm not, I may not be able to get to them. And that brings me to the last point, again, in the um, sake of completing our program on time and leaving time for questions, that is how to deal with the fact that we often have access to the clinician's notes through open notes. And we often have access to data such as test results through the patient portals very quickly before the oncologist or the specialist has had a chance to see them. So here, too, my advice would be to proceed with caution. If you are the kind of person who's constantly pressing that refresh button to see the results of the scans, and you're going to need some help understanding them, then perhaps best not to schedule those scans on a Friday before a long weekend when perhaps your clinicians won't have access to the information for a few days. So I think uh, being organized and disciplined and being prepared and using all of the channels for communication smartly, perhaps run them by somebody in your inner circle, your partner, your, your friend, somebody who's accompanied you to your cancer treatments so that you can get the most out of it. And then the reality of survivorship care, I think, these days, at least in the United States, is that patients really need to take a very active role in coordinating what gets done in the primary care sector and in the cancer care sector. And so being informed is important, feeling supported is important, and having guidance from the experts is crucial. So with that, let me turn it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. That was excellent and really so comprehensive. So I really want to thank you so much for your outstanding presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And um, I just want to uh, say a few words about um, Cancer Care Services. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization that provides free programs and services to people nationally in the United States. And people often call our cancer care our hotline, um, which is um, a HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673. And those calls are answered by an oncology social worker. And the social worker will address their questions and then go over with them what our services are. So what are our services? So briefly, we do offer support. We offer practical. We offer financial assistance and co-payment assistance. We also offer online support groups, and we offer all different ages and groups and different survivorship uh, online support groups, caregiver support groups, particular types of cancer support groups. And we also, and those are all free, and we also offer these workshops, and we have a whole list of publications. And for 
a very larger list of all the services we offer, you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And um, we have some really wonderful questions. Um, I'm going to start with, so this is a question for Dr. Roth. All anyone wants to talk to me about is how I'm, how I'm feeling my remission. I want people to understand I am more than my cancer battle. How can I approach the situation? Now that's a great question. It's, um, it often comes up with uh, friends and family asking what is socially the right question of how are you feeling um, when the last thing uh, someone who's gotten cancer treatment wants to talk about is how they're feeling because once someone asks that question, all the thoughts about what's right, what's not right come to mind. So what I've suggested to patients uh, in the past is to say, you know, I understand and I appreciate that you're concerned about me, which is why you're asking the question. But a funny thing happens to me. When someone says they want to ask how I'm doing or ask me about survivorship, um, actually, it's it doesn't really help me because I start to think of all the concerns that I could have. And when we're together, I'd like to just not think about cancer. So do me a favor. The next time we get together, I'll know you care, but don't ask me about it. And if there's something that I need to tell you about, I'll let you know. But it's nice for me to have control over what kinds of things I think of in the moment and see if that works. Excellent. Thank you so much. And the question for Dr. Palos, it makes me feel sick that to my stomach that I survived and others did not, especially those who I befriended during my treatment. How do I navigate survivor's guilt? That is a very um, good question, which is very um, challenging to answer. Guilt by survivors um, is often expressed um, to the providers um, and their family members, and or sometimes not. They just kind of keep quiet about it and don't want to share. But that uh, is, a, is a normal reaction. When those, that guilt starts interfering with your relationships with others or with your own health, then it's a good time to go out and seek professional um, help with that. You know, talk to your uh, to your doctors about uh, getting um, a referral to a therapist. Now, I'm going to ask um, our other two speakers to uh, also provide their thoughts on um, that question that you asked that was so eloquent. Dr. Roth, Dr. Shapira? So really survivor's guilt is what um, the question was about, um, that, that a person survived and perhaps some of their colleagues and right. doctors who went through treatment with them did not. So as a you know, medical doctor, um, I, I'll say that um, my colleagues in mental health probably have the more sophisticated answers. Uh, again, as somebody who's not trained, the, what I can do is sort of hold that thought to be present, to um, basically just listen to what it is that this person brings it's, it's, and maybe to normalize it a little bit because there are many people who feel this, but I'd be very interested in in learning from Dr. Roth. Yeah, I think um, uh, 
I'm not sure that I would go with the word normalize, although I understand where it's coming from. But I might validate. I might validate the the um, emotion that's there. That um, uh, you know, it may mean that you're a, a kind-hearted, compassionate person. That you have some of this feeling of why did I survive and someone else didn't. But you know, I think throughout the cancer journey, people are often making comparisons with what they're dealing with and what others are dealing with. And it's very, um, I think, potentially dangerous psychologically because even 15 people or 1,500 people getting treated for the same cancer um, are not necessarily getting the same treatment. Um, It may be the same medicines or the same surgery, but um, not all cancers are the same. They don't all respond the same way. And so to try to put in perspective that, um, yes, it may be sad that someone else didn't survive, I don't think there is um, ever a value judgment on why someone survives and why someone doesn't, although we as humans may come up with that because we like to have rational answers for why things happen in this world. Um, But I think... uh, point, Dr. Shapira, is a good one, to be able to reflect back that it's understandable that someone may have uh, that kind of a reaction, but where do they go from here? Because uh, most often uh, that guilt, uh, sometimes guilt is a helpful um, thought and emotion to have, but very often it just gets us stuck. Excellent. Thank you. Um, We have um, one last question. I think I'll open this to the entire group. How to engage your oncologist into long-term treatment summary when they only say time will tell and doesn't acknowledge lingering effects have been health-altering? Do you seek this from your primary who is not knowledgeable in oncology treatments? I feel left in the limbo about the future. Do you want to go first, Dr. Ross, with that? Sure. You know, I, that's where I'm hopeful that uh, the survivor cancer, uh, care plan can be very useful. And as more oncology teams are um, buying into that and doing that, um, it shouldn't feel like there's an abrupt end to any treatment with oncology. Um, in fact, in many hospitals, there are survivorship teams that will continue to monitor patients um, and and be able to make the point that was made earlier that, you know, the, a, a person really needs to get care um, uh, by a primary care doctor and other specialists and not just the cancer specialist. So I think um, it, it's, an important, uh, it's important to recognize that um, uh, that discussion happened and it may be, you know, we've, we've seen studies that show that uh, patients' anxiety uh, can go up paradoxically at the end of treatment when everyone might be saying, oh, you should be happy, you're done with treatment, and the patient does see a recurrence. And the person who they feel most trusting of is their oncologist who can assure them that things are, uh, maybe that things are going to be okay, but that things are okay now. So you want to maintain those connections should there be a reason or a worry down the road. But I think this is where it's very important to try to establish connections with other physicians as well. 
Excellent. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment on that? Yeah, I would just I would like say, to add. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Sure. <laughs> go ahead. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. So I would just add that having the survivor care plan or a treatment summary it does not protect you from fears and anxieties. It gives you a clear roadmap of what tests you need and may help avoid redundancy and may help provide a little clarity on who's going to order what test and what visit needs to happen when. But it is not really a solution for some of those lingering doubts and uh, that may really need a different kind of attention. Excellent. And thank you, Dr. Palos. I would just like to add, though, you know, we're always learning from our providers. Uh, that's why we go and ask all the questions. But it's also then a good opportunity for you to perhaps uh, teach your providers, uh, especially the primary providers, about the value of treatment summaries. I know that many physicians are in the community are overwhelmed by all the different things they have to keep up with. So if you can introduce them to the whole concept, maybe take an example of one that maybe you got from a friend or from a, a clinic at your oncologist um, care center, that might be a way then to start uh, the conversation with them. As I said, uh, many of our uh, professional our Healthcare professionals can go online and access templates, so they don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel, but they can at least, even if they don't provide one, they can at least use it as a template to guide the visits when, when you go to them to talk about things that are important for you as a survivor. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm just going to ask each of you if you would provide a takeaway. I'll start with Dr. Roth, then Dr. Palos, and then Dr. Shapira. Just a takeaway that you'd like people to take away from today's program. Um, I think it's good to be aware of one's emotions, um, to try to be aware of when those emotions are feeling like they're interfering with your ability to uh, enjoy uh, life and to uh, be part of life, um, and to seek help and ask questions of people um, in the healthcare profession um, if you feel like you're not doing well. And I, I agree that um, there are some fears that oncologists and even psychologists, psychologists, uh, uh, social workers cannot really take care of, but sometimes we can help um, ease the way so that people can have a more full, meaningful life. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, Dr. Palos. I would uh, like to just leave the message that it's important for every cancer patient survivor to become an active member of the healthcare team. Self-management is, is very useful because you learn about your own um, needs and your body, but then it also helps with the communication piece. When you go see your provider, you can say, well, you know, I've been keeping uh, tabs on my, for example, blood pressure, and I've noticed that it's fluctuating. So if you participate in that, in that type of style, that also will help um, enhance your own um, health status. The second thing is we're so 
focus. We've been taught so well to focus on um, reporting our, our pain, our fatigue, our not, you know, physical type of symptoms. But it's also okay. Some people may feel uncomfortable talking about emotions, but it's okay to talk about emotions. You know, and not just the distress and the sadness and feeling blue, but if you're feeling particularly happy about something that you, a milestone that you've achieved, share that kind of news also with your provider's team. You know, that's important too because it helps you validate your uh, milestones. It helps you feel like you've accomplished something, and that, again, is going to help with your quality of life and hopefully your happiness, your state of happiness. Oh, thanks so much, Dr. Palos and Dr. Shapiro. I would say um, try to be well-informed. Make sure you have support in the community and use your experts to give you guidance. Excellent. Well, I have to say this has been a phenomenal program. Although we have done this program before, um, first of all, the questions have been incredible, and our speakers have been terrific on today's program. So I actually want to thank everyone for your participation today. I do want to remind everyone that this is a one-hour program. That means we haven't been able to get to everyone's questions. Um, and so I do want to comment on that. For those of you who asked a question or have a question yet in queue that hasn't been asked, or have a question that you're thinking about, please take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know you the best, and they, of course, will be able to look at your chart, know more about you, be able to answer your questions specifically to you. Um, also, um, you, your healthcare team consists of many people, so that, that's a great team to connect with. Um, also, you certainly can contact Cancer Care, and we also mentioned a number of other organizations that are out there as resources for you. So in a couple of days, you'll be getting a survey monkey from Cancer Care, which is an evaluation of the program. But in addition to it being an evaluation, we do include all sorts of resources, 800 numbers, toll-free numbers, as well as websites for our international participants so that you can have a sense of how to get the information you need. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.